65 verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read that and then we'll pray. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. To a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of bricks or on altars of brick who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers all together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Father, as we enter into this chapter of Isaiah and the prophecy of Isaiah, we pray for the anointing and the blessing and the understanding that will come through your Holy Spirit tonight. For indeed, Lord, we realize that the very beginning of this chapter carries a tremendous weight of burden. And our hearts, Lord God, want to receive clearly, Lord, your message and your word. And not only our hearts, but our minds. Let it be, Father, that we will be open to understand these things. In these days in which we live where not a whole lot of understanding is taking place among the people of the world. And your truth goes hidden. But let it be alive and and, and as a light before us tonight, we pray that we will have your light in us as we should, as believers in Jesus Christ. Fill us, Lord, with that life and with that light, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am amazed at how much God loves his people, Israel. Now let me just interject here that I don't know that all of us would love Israel as much as we 
as much as God does. But God loves his people, Israel. As a matter of fact, I have to say that no one truly knows the extent of God's love for the nation and people that he calls his very own. To go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 and hear the words of the Lord when he says in verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In Psalm 135, verse 4, it says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, for his special treasure. And you know that even in a negative sense, when John writes in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him, there's still that attachment. He came to his own. As if the Lord has not disowned them, though they did not see Messiah when he came. And even before falling into captivity, the Lord offered encouragement and offers encouragement to the children of Judah and, and really Israel in, in, in general. When he says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so it is amazing to me that down through the years and down through the ages and down through the generations that God would still continue to love His people Israel and see them as a special treasure though we might wonder why. Especially when we read what we read tonight. Because the prayer that we just finished studying that, uh, that began back in chapter 63, verse 15, and continued through our last study in chapter 64. It had to do with the remnant asking God to intervene, to do something and not let His wrath continue to fall on, on the people. It was the remnant that was praying. And that's an important thought to understand here, because, you see, they wanted God to respond like He did when He delivered their ancestors from bondage in Egypt. And think about this, when he delivered the, the, their ancestors from the bondage in Egypt, as, as, as he let them out and as they're wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, all they did was complain, at least most of them. And yet he still delivered them. And what's interesting is that, that this most beautiful and moving prayer that we studied last time didn't seem to represent the heart of most of the Jewish exiles in Babylon. If we bring it up to the current time of Isaiah and what he was writing this about. That there would be those that would be exiled out, you know, or, or those who had been in exile in Babylon, now coming out of Babylon, going back to Jerusalem, going back to Israel. They... Uh, 
The people didn't have that heart, like the heart of those who were lifting up that prayer, that remnant, you see. So the Lord is speaking in chapter 65 to those shallow of heart in repentance. Not directed to the remnant, but directed to those shallow of heart. Their heart's just shallow in repentance, not deep repentance, not not really asking God for forgiveness. And And it ought to bring to mind that we ought to consider even ourselves when dealing with our own repentance of sin or our own uh, bringing of sin before the Lord and say, Lord, it isn't just a matter of being shallow about it. Please understand, sometimes we are. Sometimes we look at sin as just being something, well, God, forgive me. God already forgave me. Everything's cool. But not realize the deepness of, of the sorrow that comes when we offend a holy God. So he speaks to this shallow of heart in repentance. It might have seemed apparent in that prayer that God is playing hard to get. You know, Lord, please listen to us. I mean, why, why aren't you paying attention to us? That God was being stiff-necked. You, you get that impression, uh, not wanting to help his own people out. But, but, you know, we know that that isn't the case. We know that that isn't the way God is toward his people. Nor will it ever be. All along, God has presented Himself as a parent with His hands outstretched to His people night and day. And this is what He says even in this prayer. I've stretched out my hands, verse 2, all day long to a rebellious people. And He stretches it out to them because He loves them. So the problem wasn't with God, but with the people. I don't know if you, you kind of picked up on a theme from last Sunday into, to, into tonight, but folks, too many people are blaming God for everything that goes on in the world. Too many people are blaming God for the suffering in the world. Too many people are blaming God for the sin in the world, the tragedies in the world. But bring it down and focus, uh, focus your attention on how God is dealing with His own people, the people that He loves, the people that He wants to deliver. And notice that the problem isn't with God, but is with the people. For they refuse to turn to Him. And worse, in many cases they rejected Him. So the Lord is now turning to the Gentiles. Did you read that first statement that he makes in verse 1? I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here I am. Here I am. He turns to the Gentiles. And by the way, he's going to use the Gentiles to proclaim his truth and his glory to the world. We who once were Gentiles are no longer Gentiles. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We are the followers of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We have to be aware of that distinction. But before people are believers, if they're not Jewish, they're Gentiles. 
So he turns to the Gentiles. The message goes to them. Jesus came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as receive him, whether Jew or Gentile, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in his name. So now the question has to come up again. Does this mean that God is done with Israel? God forbid. God is not done with his people, but he is, in, he is using the church now, today, and has been for 2,000 years, using the church to make Israel jealous so that they might turn back to him. Think about it. Romans 11, verse 11. It's a very statement that Paul tells us there. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And you begin to get a little bit of, a, of the mindset here. We're God's people. We're not going to do what he says, but we're God's people. And all of a sudden now he's going to the Gentiles? Hey, wait a minute, we're God's people. We still haven't yet done what he tells us, but we're, you know, you see that tension, that struggle there? So salvation came to the Gentiles. Jesus himself, when he, said, when he first came, he said, I came, first, I, I came to, the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But it wasn't going to be only that. That's where it all was going to start. That Israel would be the witness to the Gentiles. Israel would be the witness to the world of the Messiah. But they missed him. For the most part. But not the Jews of Pentecost who received Jesus. And later, not the Gentiles who saw Jesus clearly in the things that Paul taught and Peter taught in the early church. And so that's where we're going to begin tonight with that idea and that thought. Verse 1 says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Here I am. The Jewish exiles in Babylon were, were examples of those who did ask for the Lord but would not find Him. Because for the most part, they sought Him dishonestly and insincerely. Yet He was found by those who didn't seek Him. He was found by the Gentiles. Uh, the, the Lord speaks of how the Gentiles would turn to Him while His own turned away from, away from Him. Uh, Paul, for example, quoting Hosea, the prophet, in Romans 9, verses 25 and 26, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So again, there's that statement of saying, you know, you who should have known and you who should have seen and you who should have recognized and you who should have continued to seek, you should have seen him, but you didn't. But there were others who saw him. 
And then Paul would quote from this passage in Isaiah 65 in Romans chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, when he says, But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, it's important for you to understand that Paul, when it, when it says, but Isaiah was very bold, there in verse 20 of Romans 10, that those words were quite boldly spoken, so much so that for this reason, among others, Isaiah was sawn asunder by his unworthy countrymen. You know, it's considered that Isaiah was actually taken and sawn in two by his own people. We get a hint of this, of course, not by name, but we can believe tradition, at least in this particular sense. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 37 and 38, Paul is talking about the hall of faith and the heroes of faith. He talks about them in general. He says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, that, that's really speaking about Isaiah. They were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And, and verse 38 is a great verse, of whom the world was not worthy. Those who walked by faith and not by sight, those who trusted in the Lord, were not worthy of this world, and the world was not worthy of them. It says they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And we have people today preaching that you need to have the biggest house and the biggest car and the biggest bank account and the biggest, you know, paycheck coming to you because you deserve it. You're a king's kid. But this is telling me what it means to walk by faith. To, the, to know that at any given time in your life, as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be contrary to the world. And the world will want to get rid of you and have nothing whatsoever to do with you. And will it ever be said of us that the world was not worthy of us and we are not worthy of this world? That was Isaiah. That's why Paul said it was a bold thing for him to say to the children of Israel because it was the children of Israel who took him and, and sought him in two. And certainly for many other things. But purely because of their disobedience and their rejection of God, their rejection of the truth. But God was going to use the Gentiles as instruments to speak forth His truth. Look at verse 2. I have stretched out my hand all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Now let me remind you that the, the New Testament says that the Old Testament was given to us as an example of how we're to live or not to live depending on the situation. And this is certainly a passage that, that, that we need to understand is not the way to live. Walking in a way that is not good according to our own thoughts. Saying out of one side of the mouth, oh I love the Lord, saying on the other side, I love the world. Or I want to have the Lord on Sunday, but the rest of the week is mine. 
Yes, I'll come to church on Sunday, but all the rest of the time, you know, hey, I'm free. No, you don't understand. You're in bondage. In bondage to sin and in death. It's important to remember that God was not quick-tempered. Please understand the mercies of God. Understand the grace of God. God was not quick-tempered and didn't overreact with His people. He was patient. He was long-suffering. He was gentle. He was kind toward them. Holding out His hand toward them so that they might return to Him. Instead, they refused the Lord, doing whatever they wanted and blaming God for the consequences of their actions. And that's why it says in verse 3, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. In essence, the children of Israel were slapping God in the face by their actions. They were worshiping false gods in the open for all to see. It was no longer hidden. You know, when you, when you hear about the high places in the Scriptures... Well, how do you hide in the high places? You don't. In the high places, you're there for everybody to see where you are. It's interesting, when we were driving through some part of Israel, I can't remember exactly, this was a couple of trips ago, and it was at night, and we were going back to the hotel from something, and uh, the guy pointed out that up on this hill, you'll see all this, this light on, these, on this hill, that was the Kabbalah Center where, you know, uh, Madonna goes, you know, now for her little jaunt with religion, I suppose. Uh, but it was there, so bright, so lit, huge place. And I thought, wow, isn't that something? Out in the open, you know, going through some mystical, try to find God in this mystical way or whatever, but reject the true God and Savior of the world. They were doing all of these things in open, in the open to be seen. In fact, they were so proud. They, they got to a point where they became proud of what they were doing. I mean, this could all be traced back years previously. Go all the way back to the book of Judges. Now, the rebellion, of course, started a little bit before that. But it is the, it is the example, or, or at least the idea, or the essence of, of what is said here that you need to see in Judges 17, verse 6. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the statement that you have to understand. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Who was their king before? They only had one king. They've always only had one king, and that's God himself. And so this was the beginning of looking at all the other nations around them that had kings and saying, well, we want a king too. Well, here they were. No, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The very last verse of Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Exactly the same verse trans, uh, transferred to the very last verse of the, of the whole book. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What a sad ending to a book of the scriptures. The book of Proverbs expresses this idea this way. In Proverbs 14 verse two, uh, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 
Proverbs 16.25 says exactly the same thing. There's two books with, with exactly the same scripture mentioned twice. So initially it might, it might sound like freedom. People want that kind of freedom today. I live in America, I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. You don't understand freedom if you say I can do whatever I want. Because whatever you might want may infringe on somebody else's life or property or, 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 or whatever. I can do whatever I want. I can, you know. No, you can't. You, you, know, you can't drive faster than what the speed limit says. Even though most people do, except not you guys. I know you better. You guys are the safest drivers in town, I know. Because I tell you enough. And so you say, oh, praise the Lord, Charlie said, don't drive fast. But it's not freedom, is it, when you're in a 55-mile zone and you drive 75 and then you hit somebody and some life is taken. There's no freedom at that point. Whether you're in bondage by being arrested or just in bondage with the guilt, you are no longer free. It really turns out to be bondage. And you know what it is? Bondage to sin and sin leading to death. As James puts it in James 1 verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So his own desires first and then enticed, the enemy comes and tempts. And notice then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full, uh, full grown, brings forth death. That's the saddest progression in a person's life mentioned in the Scriptures. But there is a solution. There's a solution for the person that lives in this manner. There's a solution for anybody in this room today who is in the bondage of sin, in the bondage of corruption... There is a solution to that very thing. Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to Christians. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that last phrase has to do with worship. Your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be transformed. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing your mind, it, 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 it takes work. It takes, some, it takes effort. It takes time. It takes time to be before God in prayer, before God in the Word, before God in, 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 in His love and grace and His mercy to pour your heart out to Him and say, Lord God, I don't want to go out into the world the same way I did yesterday. I want that to change. I want my mind renewed because there's too much ugliness there. You know the computer ling lingo, garbage in, garbage out? It's time for garbage to get out. So you have to do everything you you have to do everything possible to get that garbage out. 
If you have to become like Joseph and run from it, as he did from Potiphar's wife, you have to do these things. Because there won't be any freedom. There won't be any liberty in Christ. So that you might prove what is good and acceptable and perfect in your life. That is the will of God. I like what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17. through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, to love everything that is contrary to the things of Christ, contrary to the Word of God, all of these things... And we need to have discernment. I mean, we live in this world. We, we have to eat in this world. We have to dress in this world. You know, but we need to be wise. And we need to have that wisdom that God gives and is willing to give to us as long as we ask. If we ask, He's going to give it. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, this is James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And He's not, he's not going to hold back. He's going to give you what you need. But don't love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, he narrows the understanding of what is in the world and and what we need to be careful of. He says the lust of the flesh. You see something that you just have to have. That's not just a kind desire. That's a lust. You know. I'm just acting outside on what's inside, okay? You know. Outside we're real cool. Well, that's nice. Inside we're going, yeah, I want it. (laughs) The lust of the eyes, man. You look at something, hey, don't be looking. The pride of life. I am somebody. The Bible tells me I'm nothing and Christ is everything. The pride of life. And the world is passing away. I wish more people would see that. Underline that little phrase. The world is passing away. What do we want of something that's passing away? And the lust of it, it's passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. But alas, the children of Israel continued to be stubborn. They continued to be independent. And they continued to be evil. Look at verses 4 and 5. Well, let's combine this, uh, verses 3, 4, and 5, because... There at the end of verse 3 it says, Who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. And then it says in verse 4, Who sit among graves and spend the night in the tombs. You know, people doing that today. They, 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 they have this fascination with death. They got, you know, even kids, young kids are doing this, and high school kids, you know, they get together, wear the black and all that stuff. And they go into cemeteries and just sit there. Some of them do it because they want to communicate with the dead. That was the problem then. They thought that they could communicate with their long lost loved ones. But it was against the word of God. It was against the law of God. They sat in grace, spent the night in the tombs. 
who eat swine's flesh, of course that's, you know, pork, which was an unclean animal, a pig. The broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Uh, you know, that's enchantments and, you know, herbs and all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, uh, you know, like, like witches do today. I mean, this is the children of Israel. I'm not trying to describe the world. I'm just, just describing what they were doing. And then it says in verse 5, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. I bet you guys didn't realize that that old phrase, holier than thou, is actually from the scriptures right here. And God's response is, these are smoke in my nostrils. A fire that burns all the day. These were the most offensive and unholy ways before the Lord, for what God told them was unclean and to stay away from, they nonetheless embraced to their own folly and shame. The thing about the graves, I mean, Numbers 19 verse 11 says, He who touches the, the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. I mean, it was, a, it was in the law. And being in the cemetery is considered touching the unclean. This is the reason why when you look at the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives, there at, at, at the old city of Jerusalem, and you're looking at the eastern gate, it, right in front of that eastern gate that's already blocked in, because you know, they don't want the Messiah to come through there, that, that is, the, the Muslims don't. The Muslims put on purpose a cemetery right in front of the gate because they knew that the, that the Jews believed that the, when the Messiah comes, he and the Kohanim, who are the priests, are going to go through that gate into Jerusalem. And the priests would not walk on cemetery land. But God has a good solution to that. And he teaches us that solution in the book of Zechariah when he tells us that when the Lord places his feet on the Mount of Olives, that that whole valley is going to open up, the cemetery will be gone, the gate will be wide open, and Jesus and his people will walk right through. Because God says so. So it doesn't matter. Put more cemeteries there. Put more gravestones there. It's going to clear out. And those bricks are just going to collapse and then Jesus is going to go through that gate because that's what it, it, the Word says. So yeah, while well, the Jews were doing all of these things, by the way, think about this. The Jews were doing all these things that the Gentiles were involved in. Those were all Gentile practices. They still saw themselves as holier than the Gentiles. That's why it says there in verse 5, they keep to yourself, don't come near me, I'm holier than you are. I'm a Jew. I'm not coming down on Jews today. I respect them. I respect what, you know, what they're trying to understand about all of this. But the fact of the matter is, in those days and times, they had refused to believe what God was telling them. And so they did what they did, yet they wanted to be holier than everybody else. That is what the first part of that of verse 5 is implying. It reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. You know where a priest that's, you know, run into this man. By the way, this man was probably Jewish, probably one of his own brothers. That got robbed, you know, on, on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And uh, robbed him, I mean, when he got robbed, I mean, they took his clothes and everything. So he's out there naked, 
beat up. And a priest comes and goes around him. The Pharisee comes, goes around him. But it was a Samaritan. One of the unholies. One of the uncleans. Who stops and answers the question that was posed to Jesus. Who's my neighbor? The Samaritan answered the question. It was the Samaritan who knew who his neighbor was. Any person in need. Any person who needed the love of Christ shown. You see, pride, pride can make many a person blind. But as righteous as they thought they were, the Lord said that they had become as an irritant to him, just like smoke is to the nose. And therefore judgment is promised to them. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's the judgment. Behold, it is written before me, <coughs> I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom, <coughs> excuse me, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. God is saying that His justice will be executed upon their lives. Now while that may seem harsh, it is important to remember that God is righteous, God is holy, and according to their actions, He is giving them what they deserve. Now they refused to turn to Him so that He could forgive them. If they had just turned to Him, He would have forgiven them. So what does he do in, in, in place of that? He has to judge. Going all the way back to the book of Leviticus, when the people were given blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, the Lord stated this in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21. He said, then if you walk contrary to me, then. I mean, this is a long time before. He says, then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. According to your sins. Wow. He says, seven times more plagues according to your sins. That's the measure, you see. Your sins are heaped up this way, seven times that. Is it this? Seven times that. Is it this? Seven times that. That's the measure. Seven times the plagues. Now, understand that when he says this, that was after other warnings already that had been given. Warnings of illness, warnings of famine, warnings of defeat from enemies, warnings of drought, and even warnings of a bad harvest. He says, if you don't obey me, then I'm going to send illness. If you don't obey me, then, then you'll, I'm going to give you famine. So I'm talking about, I gave you the last thing he said. <laughs> if you walk contrary to me, I'm bringing you more plagues. And actually, there's more after this. I shouldn't say the last thing. There's even more things. So, the faithful remnant then, I should say the faithful remnant then, will not be judged as the unrighteous will be. As we see in the next verse. So you see verses 6 and 7 focus on the judgment that will come on the disobedient. But notice verse 8, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster. So he's looking at the, the children of Israel as a cluster of bad grapes. You ever bought a cluster of bad grapes? 
but somehow there's a couple of good ones in there. That's exactly what he's, saying, he's talking about. The Lord's been to Walmart. Do they sell grapes in Walmart? I don't know. You know, some people, they, they complain about grape picking and all. He says, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. Do you notice something here? That he'll save the whole cluster because of the remnant that is in it? I mean, there is a beautiful picture in this verse of the Lord finding a few good grapes among the cluster of bad grapes. And by the way, the way it is described in the, uh, in the Hebrew text, the way it is described, the good grapes actually are, are already starting to burst with, 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 with the fruit. It, it's just, you know, it's, they can tell it's a good grape. You know, all the other, the bad cluster or the, the, the bad grapes on the cluster are nice and they look like raisins. But the good ones are like full and they're, you know, they're already sweating the fruit, you know. Doesn't that sound good? Sweating the fruit. Oh. And, and, and so the Lord is finding a few good grapes among the cluster of bad grapes. It is for the sake of these, my servants, that the Lord grants blessing and restoration. Now what is so precious here is that the Lord finds his people a blessing and he prizes them and he guards them. Look at, uh, turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. While you're turning there, I, I want to remind you of, of, of a couple of things. Uh, reminiscent of and I'll mention it in just a moment but reminiscent of how Abraham had confronted the Lord with you know will you save Sodom and Gomorrah for so many people what we have to understand that when God begins to to deal with Israel in those seven years of tribulation there's only going to be one third of them left as the Bible says. That's sad. One third. The rest will be destroyed. That one third is the remnant. Now, just, just, I mean, that's, that's hard hitting. Millions of Jews have come back to the land and we rejoice over that because that's God's promise. But there's coming a time when they will be deceived by an antichrist. They will be so deceived because all they want is peace. It's, it's what we see in the news every day. They want peace. The nations around them want to destroy them. So they want peace at any cost. Eventually it's going to cost them two-thirds. And that's found in Zechariah also. But we'll study that later. Joel 2 verses 12 through 14 says this, Now therefore says the Lord, Turn to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. 
Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. You see, how God wants to bless a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You know, that, that kind of coincides with this finding of good grapes amongst the cluster of bad. They become a blessing. They're also like an offering. And what we find the Lord promising next is bringing the faithful remnant back into the land, never forgetting them. Look at, let's go back to Isaiah 65, verses 9 and 10. It says, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Accor a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me. Notice he's very clear. This is the remnant that he's speaking about. You know, even as far back as 1923, though there was a movement, you know, to, you know, of Zionism's, you know, certainly wanting to reestablish the state of Israel. Even as far back as 1923, a very wise Dutch Bible commentator. His name is Harry Boltema. He wrote in his own commentary on Isaiah, dealing with verses 8 through 10, what should be heeded by certain people in the church today who have written off Israel as if God has completely forsaken them. In 1923 he wrote this about people then who were writing off Israel. People today need to awaken to what he says. And this is what he said. If the church had clearly understood this simple example, what we've just read, if the church had clearly understood this simple example, then it would not have dared to teach Israel's total rejection. Even as he would have saved Sodom for the sake of five righteous people, so he will spare Israel, his vine, for the sake of his servants. The cluster of good grapes. That's a powerful thought. Even in 1923, before there was a state of Israel, he was sure that Israel was not to be forsaken. He was sure that Israel would once again be the nation that God had intended it to be. That out of the, the dust and the ashes of of their past. This was even before the Holocaust. He was sure that God was true to his word about his people. Now we see them there. What are people saying? Well, that's not true Israel. Well, do we have to wait for another thing to happen? Another biblical prophecy to come to pass before, before people will see God is true to his word about Israel and about the church. Well, getting back to verse 10, and we need to move quickly here. Sharon and Akor are mentioned. Sharon was west and is west of Jerusalem along the Mediterranean Sea coast, extending from Joppa, where Tel Aviv is, all the way up to Mount Carmel. So that's a pretty good extent of, of land. And then the valley of Akor was located southwest of Jericho, east of Jerusalem. So this was, would be along the Jordan River Valley and all. And it was named, the Valley of Accor, was named for the place where Achan was stoned to death for his disobedience to God in the Battle of Jericho. 
taking the spoil which was to be given to God as the firstfruits of the land. So it's quite significant then that this is the land that is going to be given then to the remnant. Both of these areas, by the way, are quite fertile today, quite beautiful today. And it is because of what the Lord God has done. The Lord God will bring the faithful remnant into this very land as is already being done today. So we move on in Isaiah 65, verse 11. But you are those who forsake the Lord. Notice who he's writing to now. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, which is Zion and Jerusalem, who prepare a table for Gad, not the nation of Gad, or I should say the tribe of Gad, not the tribe, who prepare a table for Gad. It's a Phoenician god, by the way. Who prepare a table for Gad and who furnish a drink offering for many, which is another god. Therefore I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do, I do not delight. So Gad and many are essentially the gods that the world tends to worship, even today. This Gad mentioned here, as I said before, is not the tribe, but a Phoenician god whose name means fortune. While many is the god translated destiny or fate. So now you understand when I say that Gad and many are essentially the gods that the world tends to worship. Why? Because people today are striving after these gods as well. They are striving after good fortune. They are striving after planning out their own destiny. But God is quick to spell out the destiny of those who worship such gods. He says, I will number you with a sword. You shall all bow down to the slaughter. Boy, that's pretty heavy. But that's what people want today. They want fortune, and they want their destiny, you know, lined out for them by themselves. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to become. This is what I'm going to have. This is how I'm going to live. God says it may last for a little while, but it will all come to an end. You see, it is one thing to fall into sin through weakness or ignorance. Sin is still sin, and the Lord will deal with, with it as such, but... But refusing to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's much worse. And so are the consequences. It is bad enough to be speeding down the highway. Here goes Charlie again about speeding. It's bad enough to be speeding down the highway. It's worse if you ignore the flashing red lights in your rearview mirror. Because once they catch up with you, there's no mercy. There may be a little mercy if you... Stop when you see them, and you humble yourself. Not much mercy if you see, you know, you just ignore it and go on. Once they get you, it's no fun. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32 says this. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. You see, when you seek your own destiny, eventually you're going to be set over to your own mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness. This sounds pretty much like the news and what's going on in our society today. Unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the, do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow, that's the heaviest passage of Scripture detailing our, our society and culture today. And then, and then Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, I know I've used this before in recent day, uh, weeks, but Paul says, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, whose glory is their shame. They glory in their shame. Consider then the contrast between the faithful remnant and those rebellious against God. Consider the contrast, verses 13 and 14 now. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink. Who are the servants? The remnant. Who are the others? Who is you? He's speaking to the unrighteous. My servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. It is quite possible that this passage is referring to the return of the children of Judah from the Babylonian captivity because when they were free to leave Babylon, only just under 50,000 of out of two to three million actually returned. So that is a whole lot of people that stayed in Babylon for a good amount of time. And those that remained in Babylon became comfortable. They just kind of became comfortable there. But in the end they would be lacking. In the end they would have nothing. But for those who returned, though it was difficult at first, in the end, they would be blessed for, the, for they would be in the place that God wanted them to be. If they returned in joy, in gladness that they were now where God wanted them to be, God was going to bless them. You see, here's a great lesson for us all. Just because something is easy doesn't make it the right thing to do. Just because something is comfortable doesn't make it the right thing to do. Walking in the ways that the Lord has set before us, though it may be difficult, will in, will, will in the end result in great blessing. What great blessing there is when we see all the way through what God has called us to do. 
Look at the blessing that, that Paul received when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there's a crown. You see, the fight wasn't easy. The race wasn't short. The battles to keep faith, they weren't a breeze. To keep faith means I've guarded this faith against the things of this world. I finished that race, that marathon. You know, the Christian life isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. I fought the good fight. I put up my dukes against the enemy. And now comes the crown. Lastly, the name of the apostate rebels will be slain and leave their name for a curse. And the faithful servant shall be called by another name. Verses 15 and 16. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. For the Lord God will slay you. Call his servants by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. You see, the name of the rebels will be left as a symbol of God's judgment. While the chosen remnant will forget their former afflictions. The precious thing about this is that restored Israel will not be annoyed or vexed with remorse nor with the painful memories of her vicious treatment of the Messiah. As you'll see in just a moment, they're going to weep when they see him whom they pierced. But Israel's deliverance will be a complete deliverance. This is what God is promising. He removes not only the sin, but he removes the scars. You see, there are only going to be certain scars left to see. Worth seeing, worth leaving. They're the scars that identify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His servants will be called by another name. Eventually, all of his servants, Jew and Gentile, will be followers of Christ. Christian. These are my people. By the way, if God doesn't reward his true servants and curse his false servants then God cannot be revealed as the God of truth. And that is why it says, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. So the God of truth blesses his remnant, judges the false.
He is the God of truth. I leave you with these two passages, one from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. By the way, now we're looking at the far fulfillment. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. How will they know? They'll see the scars. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. But I share with you also Revelation 1 verses 5 through 7. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. You see, when it says that he is the God of truth, he is the Amen. And so this is Jesus that they will see. It is Jesus who is the God of truth. And remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the new name given to the remnant who believes and trusts in the Lord Jesus, Messiah, is that name that is above every name. For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray.